Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and not and, as uh, simple you know, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened so, up so many you know, more doors. The show is called The, the deal. deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. Fans for Sports Network listeners, welcome to another episode of The Call Sheet, our first ever Super Bowl episode where we get to talk about all things Super Bowl related. I'm your host, Kevin Smith, and welcome to episode 43, and that, that bears a significance all its own. We'll get to that in just a minute, but I said we we're going to talk about the Super Bowl in this episode, not, not so much the game. We'll get to the game. I'm definitely going to talk about the game a little bit in the end, but that's been covered ad nauseum in a whole bunch of different forums. If you can't find Super Bowl coverage, uh, you know, you're not looking in the right spots. It's all over the place. And yeah, I mean, it's of interest to us for sure. But I really want to talk about the the Super Bowl as an American institution. I want to talk about great Super Bowl stories. I want to share some personal stories. I want to talk about some of the more compelling storylines from various Super Bowls, a lot of it involving off the field issues. And, and then also just to sort of talk about what it means to America as a whole. I really believe that the Super Bowl is one of America's great non-holiday holidays. Uh, <laughs> I, I was making the case on on uh, the, the, the whip around show I do with Jeff Hartman that that Monday should be a national holiday, the Monday after the Super Bowl. Well, probably even better, we should move the Super Bowl to Saturday night. I think a Saturday night Super Bowl with, with that Sunday off the, the following day would be one of the great weekends on the calendar. And we got to make this happen somehow. I don't know how. But before we get into all of that, right, let's let's do what we always do. Let's talk about a player who wore the number that uh, of the episode and and we are on episode number 43 and that's going to allow me to talk about a really special story and one that ties in perfectly given the fact that this is our Super Bowl episode of the call sheet. And so when we talk about number 43, the player who comes to mind for me is former Dallas Cowboys safety Cliff Harris. So any of you who are Pittsburgh Steelers fans who are listening and who are old school Steelers fans 
well, maybe not old school, but but who, who go back with me to our days at Behind the Steel Curtain may remember that that my username at, at Behind the Steel Curtain was Cliff Harris is still a punk. Uh, when I was trying to come up with a username to enter that blog, uh, I, you know, I, I saw some creative ones that were on, on the site at the time. Uh, there was a, a guy that went by Paper Champions who was a really good writer there. And I, I liked, always liked that, that username. Uh, Brad Shaw's index finger was one gold shoes, 68 hall of fame was one. So, I mean, you had, you had people coming up with some creative things and I thought, Oh, cool. What's my username going to be? And I thought about a bunch of different things. I wanted to, I, initially I wanted to go with 34 Pike, which has another Super Bowl uh, correlation. 34 Pike is the play the Steelers ran uh, on their opening offensive possession of the second half in Super Bowl 40 on which Willie Parker set a Super Bowl record by going 75 yards to the house. It's just a counter gap scheme, but I love that play. And, and uh, that's, that play always had a special connotation for me. So I thought, I thought, I thought about 34 Pike, but then I went back further and I thought, you know, what are, what are my origins as a, not just a Pittsburgh Steeler fan, but a football fan. What are my origins as a football fan? And I recalled the very first football game I ever remember watching, which was Super Bowl 10 between the Steelers and the Cowboys January of 1977, I was like, what, nine years, 10, I don't know. I don't even, I, I was little, seven, eight years old, something like that. Uh, watching it in my grandparents' house in Margate, New Jersey. And everybody in the, in the house was rooting for the Steelers. Not because they were Steelers fans, they were all Eagles fans. And so naturally, with the Steelers playing the Cowboys, uh, everybody was rooting against Dallas. And so... Uh, I didn't know much. I didn't really know football at all at that point in my life. I hadn't. I don't have any other recollection uh, recollections of watching football games, and so I I rooted with the crowd, right? Rooting for the Steelers. And in the third quarter, with the Steelers trailing the Cowboys ten to seven, Pittsburgh lined up for a fairly short field goal, and their field goal kicker Roy Jarilla, who was in the midst of a miserable Super Bowl performance shanked the field goal wide and what ensued would cement me as both a lifelong football fan and a lifelong Pittsburgh Steelers fan. Dallas Cowboys safety Cliff Harris came over to Jarilla and heckled him by patting him on the helmet and I'm sure, you know, saying some some uh, not so nice things to him. And in the midst of that, as, as Harris was sort of heckling Jarilla and Jarilla was kind, kind of trying to separate himself, Steeler rookie linebacker Jack Lambert, actually second-year linebacker Jack Lambert, uh, came over to Harris and, and you know sort of body-slammed him to the ground and then stood over him, stuck his finger in his face, uh, clearly implying that you, know, you will not bully the Pittsburgh Steelers. We're the bullies. Uh, we're not here to be bullied. And that play wound up, changing the momentum of the game. The Steelers would go on to win it 21-17. But more importantly, in that moment, in that moment, I remember my uncle, who's a diehard Eagles fan. He's such a diehard fan that he's got a tattoo now on his body of the Eagles' Super Bowl victory over the New England Patriots in, in 2017. I mean, he's a man in his late 60s, and he got that tattoo about five years ago, obviously, uh, because it was really it was the first time the Eagles won the Super Bowl, and he was so excited about it that he decided to get tattooed as a result. 
But I remember my uncle jumping up as, uh, as Lambert slammed Cliff Harris to the ground and screaming out, you know, like something like, yeah, you know, get him, Lambert. That, that Cliff Harris is a punk. Uh, and that stuck with me, man. So Jack Lambert became a hero of mine. He, he was my first ever favorite player. I would go on to have Jack Lambert posters in my room. I became a lifelong Steeler fan, but I never really forgot uh, my uncle saying that. And the, and the image of both Cliff Harris heckling Roy Gerilla and then Jack Lambert slamming Cliff Harris to the ground. And again, what was sort of like a superhero move to, for me, right? Uh, Lambert would always be cast in my eyes as a hero. Harris is a bit of a villain. More on that in a minute. But, you know, fast forward now, 30 some years. And when I first joined Behind the Steel Curtain and I, and I needed a username, I thought back to that moment. And I said to myself, ah, oh, you know what, man? I bet that Cliff Harris is still a punk. And so there we go, man. Cliff Harris is still a punk was my username for years and years and years there. Only, only dropped it when we moved over here to the fans first sports network. Uh, you know, in all honesty, man, I've heard some really good things about Cliff Harris on the, uh, on the slight chance that Cliff Harris is listening to this podcast. <laughs> uh, Cliff, I don't believe you're a punk, man. It's all in good fun. I've heard, I've heard that Cliff Harris, uh, has done a wonderful job raising money through charities and scholarships, uh, that he's become a, a big philanthropist, very successful businessman. And that's great to hear. Um, so, you know, again, all in good fun, but, but in my, you know, seven-year-old eyes or eight-year-old eyes, however old I was, he was a villain. He was a villain. And one of the things I liked about football was that football always sort of set up a heroes and villains dichotomy, right? There, that, that existed within the game of football. You, you know, you, you had favorite teams, obviously, but within, within the league itself, you also had players you tended to root for players or teams you tended to root against, especially when you were young. And, and, the, and those, those teams that you were for or against took on the form of heroes and villains. I mean, obviously Lambert was an early hero of mine. Uh, Earl Campbell to me was a heroic figure simply because of the way that he played the game, you know, like, like a superhero, just smashing through opposing defenses, unless he was playing the Steelers, of course, in which, in which uh, I rooted against him, obviously. Walter Payton, uh, in, into the 1980s, he, he, he sort of had a, a heroic feel for me, just the way he played the game, his gracefulness. It, he felt a bit like a superhero, man, how sleek he was. And he seemed to glide across the field. And then he, but he, when he needed to, he could lower his shoulder and, and slam through players. Bo Jackson, oh my God, if there ever was a superhero, uh, uh, in cleats, it was Bo Jackson, right? He, he, he just seemed to do otherworldly things, things that, that even the best athletes in the world were incapable of. And so, you know, I remember Bo Jackson when I was a teenager taking on, uh, a bit of a, a heroic form for me. And then of course, you know, there were villains and the villains seemed to come in, in sort of two forms, you know, there were sort of your obvious villains, the villains who, who kind of relished in being villains like the Oakland Raiders, the Oakland Raiders of the 1970s, uh, a team that that Chuck Noll once described as as representing a criminal element in the NFL. They made no bones about the fact that they enjoyed being the villain. They enjoyed being the bully, the intimidator, uh, the, the team that was going to play 
maybe a little outside the lines. Uh, George Atkinson and Jack Tatum, their secondary duo, relished in not just separating receivers from the football, but from their helmets. I mean, they were clearly out to hurt receivers at a time, of course, in the 1970s when you could, man. You could you could blatantly hurt players and, and barely get, get whistled for it. You know, I think back to the Jack ha- uh, Lambert, Cliff Harris moment. Lambert, Lambert slams Cliff Harris to the ground and then stands over him with his finger in his face, does not draw a penalty flag today. My gosh, man, that might get you ejected from the game. It would probably draw several flags. So obviously a different time. And the Raiders, man, the the Tatum, Atkinson, uh, Lyle Alzado, John Matuzak, John Madden-led, uh, just sort of band of marauders. Man, they were they were clear villains. But there was there was almost something likable about them in their villainy. I mean, I'm I'm supposed to I'm supposed to hate them because the Steelers Raiders were such a intense rivalry in the '70s. But you almost looked at that in a way, and and you felt like, hey, you know, that's that's a little bit like how football should be played. I mean, I should feel the same way about the Baltimore Ravens as a Steelers fan. But there was something likable about their villainous squad with Ray Lewis and Terrell Suggs and Ed Reed. And the way they played the game, man, physical, uh, in your face, make, making no bones about who they were, what they wanted to be. Again, man, because I'm a Steeler fan, I, you know, I couldn't stand those teams, but yet I bore some respect for them in the in the way that you almost kind of do respect certain villains, right? I think about the Die Hard movie. What a what a great what you want know, to talk about heroes versus villains, you know, like you get John McClane. The you know played by Bruce Willis, the quintessential cop hero, and, and then Hans Gruber. Oh man, what a great name for a villain! Played by the the fantastic Alan Rickman, uh, and and yet and there was something like distinctly likable about Hans Gruber, the the Eastern European commie villain, uh, in a movie made at the in the dying days of the Cold War. That you just you just kind of had to like him. He had a, he had a style. He had some good one liners. There was I don't know, man. He made no bones about his villainy. He was proud to be a villain. And for me, those are the villains that are the, that are acceptable villains, right? You almost, you almost welcome their villainy. Uh, the other type of villain is the villains that were the Dallas Cowboys of the 1970s or the New England Patriots of the 20 teens, the Tom Brady, Bill Belichick Patriots, they struck me as the holier than thou villains, the villains uh, who posed, you know, villains in sheep's clothing, so to speak, right? The villains who posed as, uh, you know, the, the guys doing it the right way, standing up for all the good things. The Cowboys were America's team. You know, Brady was this guy with this squeaky clean image, yet you knew none of it was true. You knew that like Cliff Harris was a dirty player or a punk-ish player. You knew that the Cowboys and Tom Landry were were doing everything that they could to bend the rules uh, as best they could uh, while posing as America's team. Just like you knew that Belichick and the Patriots were, were doing everything they could to exploit the rules of the day. And, you know, that they, they had the, the image, man, of the Cowboys in their shiny white uniforms and the star on the helmet and Brady with his perfect looks and his supermodel wife. And there was just something so abhorrent about that villainy. You know, you rooted against them so hard. The Patriots were in nine 
Super Bowls, or, or was it eight? I think it was nine, actually. Nine Super Bowls. And I rooted against them in every single one because I couldn't stand their image and the way that they conducted themselves and the way that they sort of, you know, presented themselves as holier than now. And of course, of course, I say all of this with complete respect for them and with a full understanding that I was jealous as hell because in three of those Super Bowl runs, they had deposed the Pittsburgh Steelers. They beat the Steelers in three AFC championship games. And I can't help but think that the Steelers, who have six Super Bowl titles, would have at least one and maybe two or even three more if somehow Tom Brady and the damn Patriots weren't in the way. So, so while I did respect them for their ability and their success, the way they went about it, I could never really respect that. You know, and so again, man, one of the great things about football is the way that it sort of sets up the hero versus villain plot line. And, and that often plays out in the most spectacular fashion. So number 43, Cliff Harris, right? Uh, a guy who, who really in my lifetime as a football fan plays such an important role, a central figure in the play. That made me a lifelong football fan, a lifelong Steelers fan, uh, and a guy who uh, who I deemed a punk for a long, long time. And again, Cliff, it's all in good fun, my man. So, okay, so that that's our introduction to this Super Bowl show. On the other side, after the break, we're going to talk about Super Bowl stories, right? I mean, that's kind of a Super Bowl story of my own, just right there. But we're going to talk about some of the great stories involving the games themselves, players in and around the games, side plots, off the field stories. One of the things that that's true about just about every Super Bowl is just about every Super Bowl brings with it a side story that doesn't really have anything to do with the game itself or, or that you don't really learn about maybe until after the game. And those side stories are worth retelling and we'll highlight some of the best of them after the break. So come on back. Welcome back to the call sheet. Kevin Smith with you for the Super Bowl episode of our show. And we were talking about heroes and villains before the break. And one of the things that's great when you look over the 57 Super Bowls that have been played, Sunday's game will be Super Bowl 58, is that there's lots of hero stories. And then there's, you know, there's some odd stories uh, about, about off-field issues. There's some sad stories. The Super Bowl is really about stories for me and, and, and uniquely American stories because the Super Bowl is such a uniquely American event. So let's, let's, let's weigh in on some of those right now. So we're talking about heroes and villains. And if you, if you start with the first Super Bowl, Super Bowl one, you get one of the most surprise heroes of any Super Bowl. I mean, there have been a bunch of surprise heroes in the Super Bowl. I think about like a guy like David Tyree, who was primarily a special teams player for the Giants. Uh, and and a guy not very well known by the football world who had the infamous, well, I shouldn't say infamous, I mean it, the famous helmet catch uh, and in Super Bowl 42 that that propelled the Giants to a win over the then undefeated Patriots or, or earlier a guy uh, like Timmy Smith who rushed for over 200 yards is still a Super Bowl record. In Super Bowl 22 to lead the to lead the Redskins over the Broncos. I mean, he was a guy that hardly anybody had ever heard of. 
so you get these largely anonymous figures who sometimes rise up and become these surprise Super Bowl stars. And in Super Bowl one, maybe the most unlikely of all was a guy named Max McGee. And Max McGee's story's fairly well known, but I'll, I'll tell it real quick. I mean, Mac, Max McGee was a guy uh, who had been drafted in 1954 and had a fairly successful NFL career. You know, he, his NFL career was split in half because halfway through it, he he decided he wanted to go fly planes for the Air Force. And so he quit and became a pilot. And then a couple of years later, came back to the NFL where he played for Vince Lombardi's Packers. And, you know, in the early 60s, he was a pretty good receiver. Uh, but by the time you get to Super Bowl I, 1967, McGee's on the back end of his career. I mean, in the 1967 season, he caught just four passes for the entire year and was, you know, a, a deep reserve for a Packers team that was expected to, to waltz to victory uh, over the Kansas City Chiefs, which they wound up doing for the most part. Uh, but McGee being, you know, kind of relegated to his role and, and on the back end of his career and not particularly a favorite of Vince Lombardi's. McGee was a little bit of a renegade, tended to sort of do his own thing. Uh, the night before the Super Bowl, man, he went out and he, you know, he tied one on pretty good. And he showed up late to uh, the team bus to that uh, they bust him over to the Rose Bowl. And he was pretty visibly hungover and Lombardi uh, was not very happy with him. And, you know, the, the receiver who played in front of McGee, a guy named Boyd Daller, uh, McGee said to Boyd Daller, don't get don't get hurt because I'm in no shape to play this game. And, you know, the moment that you say that, <laughs> you know it's, like, destined to happen, right? So on the third play of the game, on the third play, right, Dowler injured his shoulder and was knocked out for the rest of the game. And McGee, who had actually – he'd mistakenly left his helmet in the locker room uh, and had to borrow the helmet of a lineman, ran onto the field, hung over, you know, with this ridiculously oversized, ill-fitting helmet on, uh, and and a couple plays into the drive on which he entered the the game made a tremendous one handed catch on a ball like thrown behind him from Bart Starr and then took it to the house for a touchdown. He scored the first touchdown in Super Bowl history. Uh, and I mean, he went on to catch in that game alone. He went on to catch seven passes uh, over a hundred yards receiving. He had two touchdowns, hundred thirty eight yards receiving to be exact. And he was named the game's MVP. Uh, the balding, sort of slightly doughy, not particularly fast and visibly hungover Max McGee wearing a lineman's helmet turned in those numbers in Super Bowl one to become the MVP. The next year in the league would be his last, and then he retired. But, I mean, that's, a, that's an amazing story, man, when you think about it. Uh, and it also sort of illustrates how much the game has changed. I'm, pr I'm fairly certain. Nothing similar, at least with an athlete of his, at his, of his caliber, could happen today. So from Max McGee to Timmy Smith to David Tyree, man, you get some unlikely heroes in Super Bowl games. You also get some of the most odd and ridiculous plays that you, know, you can imagine, plays that just nobody ever expected. I think maybe one of the greatest of those came in Super Bowl Seven. Uh, when the undefeated Miami Dolphins, who would go on to, to beat the, the Redskins 14-7 uh, and, and claim their, their stake to uh, the, the, you know, the only in the Super Bowl era, the only undefeated untied team to go start to finish. Man, that, that 
that standing was almost jeopardized on a fabulously, <laughs> fabulously terrible play in the fourth quarter of Super Bowl seven. When when Miami kicker Garo Yepremian, all five foot eight of him, came on to try a forty two yard field goal that would pretty much seal the game, uh, but the kick was blocked by the Redskins, and then the ball kind of bounced around behind the line of scrimmage before Yepremian came up with it. And you know, rather than just falling on the ball, the the little kicker man who who looked like he'd never done an athletic thing in his life started to run with it, and then in a state of panic kind of tried to heave a pass that uh, just slipped out of his hand and didn't really go anywhere. And then your premium awkwardly sort of tried to catch it. And then the, the ball uh, kind of bounded off his hands, popped up in the air when a, a Washington defensive back by the name of Mike Bass just plucked it out of the air and, and ran it back for, for a touchdown to, to cut the lead to 14 to seven. Obviously Miami would go on to win the football game and complete their undefeated season. But that was, that was one of the clearly just most fabulously boneheaded plays in Super Bowl history. It can earn, I mean, the Super Bowl has such high stakes that it can earn a player uh, a, set, a state of infamy for the rest of their career. You think about Jackie Smith, the, the Dallas Cowboy tight end, who in, in Super Bowl 13, with the Cowboys trailing the Steelers 21 to 14 uh, in the third quarter. And Dallas with a third and goal on about the five-yard line. Roger Stallback drops back to pass, and he's got a wide-open Jackie Smith in the end zone. And this is Jackie Smith, uh, the Cowboys' tight end, who had been an all-pro player for years in the league with both the then St. Louis Cardinals and the Cowboys, a pro bowler. Uh, by all accounts, man, one of the best tight ends in the NFL. And, you know, he, he had a Bill Buckner moment, man. And, and in his Bill Buckner moment, right, Stallback's pass – might have been a little bit low, uh, but um, eminently catchable. And and Jackie Smith sort of goes down to catch it and hits him right in the chest, and and bounces off and squeezes through his hands and onto the ground. Uh, and and that drop necessitates a field goal. Dallas kicks a field goal, and they kind of blow their chance to draw even in that game. The Steelers wind up winning it, scoring two two touchdowns and putting the game out of reach. Uh, and Jackie Smith will forever be remembered as I don't want to say a villain uh, because that's not really a villainous act, but as a goat for sure by Cowboy fans, despite the fact that he was a great pro, very, very Bill Buckner esque, the former Red Sox, Chicago Cub, LA Dodger first baseman, who was one of the great hitters of his era uh, who famously allowed Mookie Wilson's dribbler to go through his legs uh, in, in the world series and uh, leading to to the Mets claiming that series in, in six games. So it is amazing how, uh, how a high-profile mistake in the Super Bowl can earn a player a reputation from which they will never shake free. You know, obviously there's a flip side to that. And, the, you know, the flip side is that there have been some plays that have been so legendarily great that they have come to define NFL careers, or if not to define them, then to cement certain players uh, as greats of the game on either those plays alone or or really on their ability to sort of rise in the moment and create uh, something truly special. I mean, Tyree's helmet catch is probably the, the greatest example of that. The Steelers, having been in so many Super Bowls, have had some of those moments. You, you think about 
uh, in the same Super Bowl, in Super Bowl 43, two of the most iconic Super Bowl moments in the history of the game. Both came in Super Bowl 43 by Steelers when James Harrison had maybe the, the single greatest play in the history of the Super Bowl, his 100-yard pick six at the end of the half with Pittsburgh leading 10-7 and, and Arizona with the ball uh, in the dying seconds of the half on the Steelers' two-yard line, about to go in and take a lead right before halftime. And James Harrison lined up on the right edge, looking like he's going to blitz Kurt Warner. Instead, drops off the line of scrimmage at the last second and slides underneath a, a little slant route, picks it off, and then, and then uh, embarks on one of the most fabulous touchdown returns of all time, weaving in and out of Cardinals' uh, block, uh, off, offensive players trying to tackle him, getting blocks from the Steelers. Larry Fitzgerald inevitably you know, running about 30 yards out of bounds down the sideline to track Harrison down at the opposite end of the field. Uh, Harrison tumbling into the end zone, landing on bodies to catapult himself across the goal line and then lying there as though he'd been shot. I mean, uh, you know, the game, the, the play going to replay and nervously waiting to see if he had gotten in. Uh, just just a, an, an amazing play. And then at the end of that game, Ben Roethlisberger's impossible pass to Santonio Holmes in the corner of the end zone over three Arizona defenders that somehow found its way to Holmes's hands and Holmes with a ridiculous toe-tap catch to, to uh, give Pittsburgh the lead with 35 seconds left, and they would hold on hold on to win. I mean, those, those are just indelible plays in Super Bowl history. You think about Mike Jones, man. Here, there's another guy who kind of made his name with uh, a single play, right? I mean, Mike Jones would be a largely anonymous figure in, in – Pro football history. I mean, he was a, a, a decent linebacker for the for the St. Louis Rams, um, but he was more so a guy who had had his moment, and his moment came when he tackled Tennessee receiver Kevin Dyson one yard one yard from the goal line in uh, at the end of the Super Bowl to deny the uh, the Rams an opportunity to tie that game. And and send it into overtime, uh, in 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 one of really kind of the the greatest endings to a Super Bowl of all time. You can sort of see Steve McNair hitting uh, Dyson on on that little slant route, and then Dyson like cutting towards the Super Bowl, and and Jones dropping him with an absolutely perfect form tackle at the one yard line uh, to lock up Super Bowl thirty four for the Rams. All right. You think about, you know, again, now we're now we're now we're back to talking about great players. But you think about Joe Montana's drive to to beat the Bengals in 1989 in the Super Bowl when when he hit uh, culminating a 90 yard touchdown drive uh, that put San Francisco in front with just seconds to play when he hits John Taylor on a slant route, a drive that begins with the, the famously told story, you know, Cincinnati leading 16, 13. Two minutes to play. San Francisco with a ball on their own 10-yard line. They got to go 90 yards to score. Montana trots out onto the field and spies the actor John Candy kind of standing at the corner of the end zone watching the game. And, and as he enters the huddle, he says to all the all the 49ers players, hey, guys, look, there's John Candy. Uh, I, <laughs> the, the, the coolness of, of Joe Cool, Joe Cool Montana in that moment, uh, just to sort of have a little bit of levity and the ability to kind of 
you know, get everybody relaxed before they embark upon that that game-winning drive in the most high-pressure moment is a fabulous story, man. Super Bowls can make legends, whether they be for uh, good or for bad. And, and for that, it's such a unique event. Gosh, in that vein, I, th- I think about uh, Bill's kicker, Scott Norwood. My goodness, man. Scott Norwood, whose 47-yard field goal gets pushed wide right uh, in the 1990 Super Bowl, as the uh, as the Bills lose to the New York Giants, twenty to nineteen, had Norwood's kick made it there on the last play of the game, the Bills would have been Super Bowl champions. And Norwood was sort of tormented by that for years and years and years. Had to go into therapy. Uh, they they spawned a, a pretty good spoof on Norwood though in in the uh, Ace Ventura Pet Detective movie with the uh, fictitious kicker Ray Finkel. Uh, who played upon Norwood's story uh, by kidnapping Dan Marino from Marino's failure to turn the laces out while holding a, a Finkel kick in a fake Super Bowl. But yeah, man, that's got real world repercussions. You know, when you think about the things that Scott Norwood had to go through because of of his Super Bowl moment. And there's there's all sorts of strange off field stories too. I mean, some are some are kind of funny and some are fascinating. Others are sort of sad and tragic. I don't. I think n- none are more bizarre than the story of Barrett Robbins, the the starting center for the Oakland Raiders, who the night b- before the 2003 Super Bowl between Oakland and Tampa Bay simply went missing. Uh, just you know, were reported to the team hotel for curfew the night before the game, and then and then didn't show up didn't show up the, the next morning at the team breakfast and nobody could find him. And they called his wife uh, who was staying at the, the hotel where all the, all the team's families were staying and she hadn't seen him. She had just assumed that he was at the team hotel and, and Barrett Robbins had disappeared and he eventually showed up later that day, kind of disoriented, uh, intoxicated, clearly in no shape to play in a football game wound up, Sitting out that game, the Raiders not only reshuffled their line, but uh, reshuffled their game plan. I mean, that, some people have said that that the reshuffling of their game plan, which sort of occurred in, in the last couple of days of preparation leading up to the Super Bowl, was one of the reasons why Barrett, uh, why Robbins left because of the pressure that it put upon him to have to. Uh, they, they went from sort of a run-heavy game plan to a pass-heavy game plan, and it put a lot of pressure on him to have to call all of the protections and uh, pe- people didn't know it at the time, but Robbins would go on to be diagnosed as bipolar. Uh, he also w- was you know, caught up in, in a steroid scandal. The combination of steroids and mental illness was obviously something that was extremely detrimental to him. Turns out that the night before that Super Bowl, he had disappeared to Tijuana. The game was being played in San Diego. He had gone across the Mexican border and, and was in Tijuana drinking in a confused state. He later told people that uh, he'd woken up from a nap with under the belief that the, that the Raiders had already won the Super Bowl. And so he went down to Tijuana to celebrate. Uh, I mean, just, you know, bizarre story. Unfortunately, man, you know, Barrett Robbins, life has been dominated by bouts with the law. He's been in and out of prison, in and out of mental health facilities since 2003. And, and, you know, as a guy whose kind of whereabouts uh, are unknown at times, you know, you just you wish obviously the best for people like that. But, you know, you, occasionally you get a Super Bowl story, man, of just 
that kind of like what you know you think to yourself what what how how can that happen how can how can that be a thing but you forget man people people are people man they got they got they feel pressure they they the, the moment can overwhelm them they bring their personal baggage to the ultimate stage the highest possible stage imaginable and sometimes it's just too much for people i'm alex rodriguez and i'm jason kelly from bloomberg this is the deal each week you'll hear us in conversation with business icons this show will explore deal making across sports media and entertainment that is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and, not as uh, simple you know, I, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened so, up so many more doors. The show is called The, the deal. deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. And, you know, so sometimes the bizarre doesn't take place off the field. It, it takes place among the spectacle that is the Super Bowl and maybe no more no moment has been more bizarre in Super Bowl history uh, than the moment Justin Timberlake snatched away uh, Janet Jackson's bustier, bustier and bra, whatever the hell that's called, um, and then stood there like kind of baffled as she tried to cover up, realizing that, you know, she just shown her boobs on, on live television, uh, or at least part of them. Uh, and then, and then you know the the controversy afterwards as to whether or not it was contrived was uh, you know for the the event forever being encapsulated as Nipplegate. I mean that that was in that happened by the way at halftime of one of the best Super Bowls ever. Uh, the Patriots' second Super Bowl win, where Adam Vinatieri kicks a forty-one yard field goal uh, in the in the waning seconds to lift the uh, the Patriots to a victory over the Panthers. But man, that that will forever be the the ultimate halftime show, right? You know that that Jackson Jackson's boob was on display for the American public to see, and you know it was great. What about that was like it unleashed a barrage of sort of moral crusades in the aftermath of of essays and TV cable segments devoted to you know uh, like how horrendous it was that you know, we had we had seen a, a, a breast on television and children would be scarred from this. I mean, you know, and again, we're talking about a football game, man. I mean, it, it's amazing when you think about that from a, a football perspective that wait, wait a minute, we're talking about what? Uh, I mean, I mean, that's, that's also though what, what makes the Super Bowl so great, right? The Super Bowl is not just about the game. The Super Bowl is about the spectacle. It's about the halftime show. I'm sure on Sunday there will be millions of fans way more interested in what goes on with Usher uh, at, the, at the halftime show and whether or not Tay-Tay is going to make an appearance and, and how many times they'll show Taylor Swift in the stands. And there are going to be lots of people who are going to be tuned into that stuff, and lots of people who are going to be tuned into the commercials, and and yet you know you'll 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 assemble these massive audiences to watch this game, uh, because it's become a almost like religious experience for Americans. Uh, I'm going to have a party, man. I, we 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 throw a Super Bowl party almost every year. I'll probably have 25 people at my house, man, and we'll we'll cook up a storm. I'll probably make my go-to pulled pork. Uh, and and overload the house with food and and we'll eat too much and we'll probably drink too much uh, and we'll and we'll watch the game and and just about everybody there is either going to be a Steelers fan or an Eagles fan. There's going to be no Chiefs fans, no 49ers fans. Nobody's going to have a rooting interest in it, and that'll make it 
fabulous, really, you know, because everybody will just be able to kind of hang out and have fun and play our block pools and, and, you know, root for stupid things like, you know, who wins the coin toss last year's Super Bowl, same party, same people, but all Eagles fans. And it was an intense environment. It is, it is crazy how different the Super Bowl is when your team's in it versus when it's not. I mean, last year's Super Bowl party wasn't so much a party uh, as it was one of the most intense environments I've ever been in with 20 Eagles fans living and dying on every play. And I could kind of get up and walk around and enjoy myself and, you know, go go get some more food and, and go get a beverage and step outside if I wanted to because, you know, hey, it wasn't my team, man. But the But watching what they went through almost made me like happy that the Steelers weren't in it. You know, like you almost feel a sense of relief when your team's not in the Super Bowl, just so you can enjoy watching it. And that's easy to say maybe as a Steelers fan, for those of you who may be fans of the Browns, the Lions, uh, teams that, that haven't been to the Super Bowl or, or, or like my, my, my buddy Maz, who was on, on this show a couple of weeks ago, lifelong Jets fan. He's probably like, screw you, Smitty, man. I, <laughs> I want the Jets in the Super Bowl. And that is understandable, totally understandable. Uh, but but when your team is not in it, you can enjoy it. And we're going to enjoy that game on Sunday. And so to wrap it up, thoughts on the game real quick. Uh, I, I just think this, man. I think that San Francisco is the best team. I think that they've been playing uh, or that, that they have the most talent. And I think if this game was played on paper, they would win. But I don't think they're playing the best football. I think the Chiefs are playing great football right now to go into Buffalo and then go into Baltimore and win in both of those places was so much more impressive than what San Francisco did at home against two young, inexperienced playoff teams in which they were outplayed in both of those games and only came back to win because those teams opened the door for them to come back and win. Though The inexperience of both the Packers and the Lions showed up in the second half of both of those games. And that opened the door for San Francisco. And I don't think San Francisco can play that way and beat Kansas City. To beat Kansas City, you have to beat Kansas City. I And, and I don't believe that the Chiefs are going to give the 49ers an opening uh, if Kansas City gets out ahead. And so that's my suspicion. My suspicion is that the Chiefs are playing steady football. The 49ers are playing inconsistent football and and I'll take the steady team at this time of year seven days out of the week man so I think it's going to be a good game very competitive game a close game I don't know if I got a score I think I think on the whip around with Jeff Hartman I predicted 24 20 Chiefs and that sounds about right to me so anyway for good or for bad man I hope everybody has a great Super Bowl experience if you're a fan of either the Chiefs or the Niners good luck check your pulse man Try not to stress yourself out too much. You know, don't make this an experience where you got to go to the hospital afterwards or anything like that. But that's what it is, man. It's the Super Bowl. It's the ultimate, ultimate sporting event in America. Uh, and I'm glad we have it. All right. I'll see everybody next week. Take care.